We know the rules, we know the law, we know the Constitution, but I think we have no real sense about just what it means, the human cost of having handcuffs touch your flesh. Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. In the first poem in Reginald Dwayne Betts's new collection, every line ends with the words, after prison. And it's fair to say that Betts is still wrestling with what after prison means. Betts spent close to nine years in prison, from age 16 to 24. In 1996, Betts was part of a carjacking in a Virginia Mall parking lot. He spent much of his time behind bars reading and eventually writing. After prison, he went to college and then Yale Law School. He also published a memoir and three books of poetry. The most recent is called Felon. It's about his incarceration and it's also about blackness and the weight of history. I sat down with Duane for what became a really moving encounter. And just a heads up, there's some adult language throughout this one. Reginald Duane Betts, I've been uh, reading your stuff nonstop for the last four or five days, so um, oh. it's, it's a privilege to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Reading four or five days is pretty cool. If you lasted five days, that means the book is either decent or it just took you forever because it wasn't decent. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started with the memoir. Okay, okay. A Question of Freedom, and then I moved on to Felon. Okay. You know, poetry is good to read slowly and, and a few times if you can do it, right? Yeah, man, that's what I tell people. If you read poetry fast, you, you miss the music, you miss the meaning, and, and all you get is like a sort of word soup. So, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to actually... Uh, plunge right into the poetry itself. In the first poem of uh, Felon, you write that it's prison's vastness your eyes reflect after prison. And I was struck, in fact, by the number of mentions of the ocean in the poems throughout Felon. There's references to shipwrecks and castaways and uh, Jonah and the whale and prison corridors as long as the Atlantic. And you also have the mother of a black defendant in court saying, you can't throw my son in that fucking ocean. Have you thought about why this image of the ocean and, and, and prison keeps recurring for you? This is one of the great things about talking to people about my book who are both interested in and interested in poetry's literature and, and poetry's ideas. Because And poetry's politics too. Right, because thinking about that, like it's prison's vastness your eyes reflect after prison. And the vastness is that that vastness of the ocean, right? And then it's why do those images keep recurring is probably because it's some subtle way in which I'm thinking about prison as a disaster that's akin to, you know, the Middle Passage. And, and, and this is, again, man, this is not really to say that prison is like slavery at all, but it is to say that it is something bewildering that happens when you move from from freedom to incarceration. And it's almost like you have you know, you recognize that ocean, that, that thing is what you spend the rest of your life trying to get back across to this thing that we call freedom, right? And I think that's why it comes up again and again. And then I also think just on some very personal um, level, I've been on a cruise and you go out at night and you stand on deck in the ocean, it is so terrifying. Or you, or you go out to a beach 
and you stand out on a beach and you look into the and the waves get very violent late at night and you stand in there and you're looking at the waves and you just imagine 15 feet away from where I'm standing now, I die. And I think once you, at least for me, I think having been to prison, I feel inextricably connected to that whole world of possibility of both, you know, doom and, and maybe even um the best of whatever trauma gives us, if trauma ever gives us the best of anything. If we pick up this idea then of prison as being kind of this ocean that is creating this kind of distance between you and the world, there's clearly a kind of before and, and after in, in your life, though whether there's really an after prison is, I think, a, a, a question that you're wrestling with. But if we go back to the before prison, Dwayne, that's in 1996, you're a 16-year-old kid. You write your 5'5 five, five and 125 pounds. You want to go to Georgia Tech. You want to play point guard and get an engineering degree. But then this kind of ill-considered, ill-conceived event happens, and you you know, end up getting a bunch of felony charges in the space of about 30 minutes. Can you talk a little bit about who this Dwayne was and when he was 16 and, and, and what led to him kind of tapping gently, as you say, on the window of a guy in the car with a with a pistol with the safety on? You know, it's, it's so funny, right? Like that whole image, I mean, I could spend like an hour talking about that whole image. And we got time. Which I thought it was good. <laughs> which, know, the tapping gently The image? tapping gently <laughs> with the safety on because what I was trying to make people recognize is that the fact that I tapped gently didn't matter, and the fact that the safety was on didn't matter. Right. And it's a way that we understand violence, and we understand what people, the crimes that people commit, and the way I understand my own crime, where, like, the tapping gently doesn't matter, and the fact that the safety on doesn't matter. Because the victim because the doesn't whole, know that. Right. The victim doesn't know, and the whole act is, is this thing of, like, what does the victim experience in that moment? What did that man experience in that moment? And I think at 16... That was the dilemma. You know, somehow I thought I always, I mean, I, maybe all 16-year-olds think this, but specifically in that moment, I thought that there were these things that I could do to make what was happening somehow not as bad as, as, what, as what it was. And so at 16, I think, and this has nothing to do with me blaming the guys I was hanging around. This has nothing to do with me blaming my community. This actually doesn't really have anything to do with me blaming the resources that did exist or didn't exist. It's just acknowledging that at 16, there was a world at that moment that might have better had me prepared for whatever I was confronting. And I didn't have access to that. And what I did have access to was, like, my own absurdities. It was my own imagination or lack thereof that made me believe it was possible to, to, to pick up a gun and not ruin my life forever. I don't know. And I was an anomaly. I was like a nerd. You know what I mean? But I could play ball and talk shit. And so I couldn't fight. And maybe not being a fighter is the one thing that saved me, you know, because I, I had all of these talents, but not that one. And so, um, you know, going to prison extremely vulnerable, I think it forced me to develop some other skills and um, kind of worked out for me. But I don't know who that 16-year-old kid was. I mean, you do wrestle a fair bit in your writing with your own your own responsibility for what happened, and, and we're hearing that right now. But you also talk a lot about history and, and kind of the weight of history, history as uh, prophecy and albatross, I think you say at one point. How do you understand your own role in, in what happened and then the role of history and, and the larger context and this racialized system where you go to prison and some of the people you meet have adopted, simply adopted the nickname Black. 
I should say, you know, like writing the memoir, one of the things that wasn't a challenge for me as it might have been for other people is, you know, I decided to be a writer at 16. And I spent my whole time incarcerated, really asking myself questions about where I was, why I was there, how did I get there? And I started thinking about history and studying history and reading these books that helped me interrogate what we now call mass incarceration before that was a word in common parlance, right? And now how do I think about it? I think it's, you know, I think that it's really difficult to govern. And I think that if I have a criticism at all, it's, it's I mean, I got a bunch, I guess. But the primary criticism that I have is that there were so many actors that were just willing to not be thoughtful about the crimes that we had committed and about the, the dangerousness of the places that they would send us to. I remember my judge saying, I'm under no illusion that sending you to prison would help. Yeah, that really jumped out at me, too, yeah. And so it's, but why do you send me? And, for nine years. Right. And, well, he might argue that I, I could have sent you for life because that was what was statutorily permissible. He might have argued that your minimum sentence was 23 years. And, in fact, I cut that down by, you know, a, a considerable amount of time so that you would only have um, nine years to serve. But still... He made a decision and the prosecutor made a decision and made arguments that just, you know, sometimes weren't factually true and and were completely independent of the person I was at that moment. You know, and I, I think my, my sort of criticism of the system is that and, and now, too, is that we don't know how to think about crime through the lens of anything other than the crime itself. And I think that's not really a productive way. To, to think about things because if, if it was then then we would just all agree that if you steal something you should get your hand chopped off you know if the, if that moment is all that matters then you stole something with your left hand you should get your hand chopped off and you will never steal anything with your left hand again you know like if you murder somebody then you should just get executed and it should happen as quickly as possible and you will never murder somebody again but we recognize that that's absurd and yet we haven't really pushed ourselves to figure out well what makes more sense why don't we do a, a poem now? I mean, I think one that describes some of your experience in prison where you're, where you're sent for nine years at 16. This is one that really struck me called November 5th, 1980, which I, I take as your birth date. Yeah, it's my birthday. Yeah, no, so it's a poem that's after a Joseph Brodsky poem called May 24th, 1980. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that poetry just teaches me is there's a, a way in which somebody else's experiences speak to yours in the most unexpected of manners. And he says a line in there that says, um, I have braved for one of wild beasts steel cages. It's like, what? Yeah, um, he went underwent forced labor and a Russian exile. Yeah, so I mean, and so that poem, you know, so this poem is patterned after that in, in terms of rhyme scheme, but also intention. I have called in my wasted youth the concrete slabs of prison home, awakened to God's keeping tabs on my breath, bartered with every kind of madness, the state's mandatory minimums, and my own callous. I've never called the man father, and while sleep twice wrecked cars, drank whiskey straight, nothing suffices. I fell in love with sons I wouldn't give my name. Once swam at midnight in the Atlantic's violence, under the water rattling broke the silence. I cussed men with fists like hand bones and got beaten to dust. Buried memories in my gut that would fill a book. I've carried pistols, but I've never held a bullet. There's frightful little left for me 
to hold in fear. Definitely not the debt that threatens to hollow me. I've abhorred transparency, confessed to so-and-so, but what if it matters? In his life, so much has troubled, and a few things that didn't never failed to baffle. Thank you for that. You know, it's interesting, Brodsky's poem ends on uh, kind of more of a hopeful note in some ways, something about my, my mouth will be stuffed with gratitude. Or, yeah, yeah. Man, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think being baffled is hopeful. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> you know? I think, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the automatic watch? The automatic watch it is, is a work of art. You know, it's built with gears. And you put the watch on, and your movement is what like stores that kind of energy to keep the watch going. So if you wear it for eight hours, then it's good for the next like maybe three or four days. But if you take it off and you don't wear it for like a week, then it stops. And so living is what allows you to keep living. But the other, for me, beautiful thing about the watch is that every one of them is idiosyncratic. The second hand always has a different movement and you always lose time. So you have to go back and check the watch because every day you lose in a few seconds. It's not like quartz that's keeping perfect time forever. But the other beautiful thing about it for me is that when the watchmaker is making a watch, if the watch tells you what day of the month it is, that's called a complication. If the watch tells you the day of the month and the day of the week, that's two complications. And so the idea uh, of a complication to me is the same thing that troubles you, right? But it doesn't necessarily have to be this thing that ruins you. It's just the fact that the world is complicated and that, you know, you have these things that trouble you. And the watchmaker has these things that clearly trouble him because it requires more skill. It requires more technique. But that trouble that he goes through is a benefit to, to us as the wearer of the watch. And so maybe what I'm saying is that I don't know if I see trouble in that sense as necessarily a bad thing. It's just I, I think me holding on to this idea that there's always this, you know, duality and, and, and being aware of it um, doesn't necessarily have to be unsettling. I don't know. I like that poem. I like it too. <laughs> so uh, you you clearly got a, a hell of an education in prison. You're there from age 16 to 24, I think. So when you come out, that's a, a third of your life. You spent time in five different prisons. I, I suspect the answer to this is pretty brief. What, what kind of formal educational opportunities were ever offered you in prison <laughs> yeah that's brief that's brief zero yeah zero <laughs> yeah i mean yeah offered i mean they allowed me to take advantage of things i could pay for on my own so i paid for a paralegal course i took a, a writing course while i was in prison as well as the paralegal course and the writing course was quite useful because it was really modeled like the mfa program and so you had this one person who is a published writer who's sort of like your mentor and takes you through the paces and the first piece I wrote, again, this has been my obsession, was about juveniles being tried as adults. And I talked about the sort of historical perspective of juveniles being tried as adults. And I got it published. And while while you're in prison. While I was in prison. And I remember when I came home and I went to sign up for community college after a whole bunch of other things that ha had happened. But I had that piece with me as a talisman, you know, to say um, once time a gun was my talisman and that didn't work out. And I had this published piece that I got published while I was in prison to say if somebody challenged me, but look, this is what I did. So those were the only two opportunities, I think, for, for formal education. And they weren't offered by the prison, but the prison didn't 
prevent me from having access. They didn't prevent you from paying for it yourself. Right. But there you are in in prison, in, in solitary even, you know, reading Great Expectations and Max Weber, you say. Yeah. You know, I mean, what, what, what role did reading play Man, for you through those eight years? I um, I, you know, it was just identity, which is interesting, right? Because partly when I was 16 and I, and I was smoking weed and committing petty crimes and then committed this robbery, that was also about identity, too. You know, as much as I might say I was intended on going to Georgia Tech, and intended on playing ball and intended on being an engineer, all of those moments that I spent smoking weed, I knew that they weren't contributing to me actually achieving those goals. And because most people in my family didn't know the stuff that I was struggling with, and, you know, I mean, like, it was an era in which I think it was easy to miss a lot of stuff. And so um, so what's interesting is, like, I think that those were choices about identity as well. And getting locked up forced me to realize that that was a choice about identity. And it's hard to talk about prison because you have to rationalize these individual choices with all of the systemic failures. Um, and what I do know how to do, though, I think, or what I did know how to do then as a child was, was pick a new identity. I didn't grow up with my dad. And so my dad came up in the 80s. And we think about I was an 80s baby, but that means that I wasn't really in the war on drugs, right? My dad was a young man a 20-year-old in 1980, and he was in the war on drugs, right? He was, like, in the streets, and he remembers the generation of men his age that became drug addicts. It's a, it's a line in a, in a Pusha T song that says, a toothless crackhead was the mascot. This is the world that he remembers. And I came of age in that world, and my friends became drug dealers, but I'm talking about the first scourge that turned so many people away from their communities and was a part of this uptick in, in incarceration. So my dad disappears. And so much of what I talk about, about criminal justice reform, is really about the war on drugs and what that did to my community, right? But when I think about my dad, I can't have a conversation with you about the war on drugs. I can only have a conversation with you about every single individual choice he did that asserted an identity and that he could have chose to assert a different identity and he didn't. And I have to grapple with like how I deal with that and how he deals with that. But the way that I deal with that on a personal level is just not thinking about the system failures. And going to prison, the way I dealt with my own situation, I think, was just to assert a different identity. And it became a reader, as if being a reader alone would solve some complicated moral dilemma that had buried me to the point that I thought it was acceptable to pick up a pistol. And in some absurd way, it did, you know, like just becoming a reader changed so much. I don't know if it had changed so much for everybody, but I, I think that um, in books, I found the questions that I needed to really grapple with and, and some of the answers. And even I found the, I don't know, maybe like courage or wherewithal or ability to think about a world that was larger than my own troubles. And and then you say it's in, in prison, in solitary, I think, actually, where you make this decision to take the identity of a, a, a poet, which, you know, I think you write says that, that might sound very romantic to you to make this decision, but in fact, there was nothing romantic about it. It was just a necessity. Yeah, I mean, look, as Etheridge Knight, he's writing poems about prison. His book is literally titled Poems from Prison. 
and he's writing about people that I recognize. And in fact, you know, he got this poem called For Freckle Face Gerald, which is about a kid that was 16 that went to prison. And this is history. And, and this is written in the 60s. And all of a sudden, I'm recognizing that a poet could chronicle history. A Somebody poet. slipped this anthology of black poets under your door in solitary right now. I mean, I'm romanticizing this. It's so but. funny because in my head, I was thinking that's a really, I, that's what I said, though. And I was like, yeah, that's a really romantic image. I don't know <laughs> if it was that romantic. I actually think what happened was like, because the, the sales were parallel. And you could just say, yo, send me a book. And like when I sent somebody books, I would like, if it's a, even if it's a sale right across from you, you kind of got to put some, some, some oomph behind the book as you slide it, right? Because you, you want it to go. And the person that gave me the Black Poets, like they weren't in a cell that was right next to me. So they had to like angle the slide too. And you and, still don't know who this person is. Nah, you know, they just send me the book. And, and that's the kind of, so maybe that is romantic. I mean, I, I think that it's something romantic about that to say that, I don't know, man, I, you know, I got this book. I don't know who gave it to me. I don't know why the person slid it to me besides the fact that I asked for a book. And we were in a community in which this is what you did. The library didn't come to us, so you read a book, and then you passed it on. And you didn't pass it on and say, I love this book, you should read it. You pass it on and say, you get to make your own decision about this, because me and you ain't even friends. But the book now is yours for the time period it takes for you to read it. And the honor code says that once you're done with it, you pass it on to somebody else. And in that way, I don't even know who I gave the Black Poets to after I finished it. I know that I read it. I copied the poems down longhand because I wanted to carry them with me. And I was like, I'm a poet now. And I passed the book on and I carried around that that, that like sheaf of handwritten poems um, for a whole bit, you know. You, you talk about the secret of survival in prison being learning to do it all alone. Something you had to do as a start learning as a 16 year old. I don't know if you if you still feel that way. And then I, I mean, I also wonder now you're somebody with a, a family and, uh, you know, you've been out what, 15 years or something? I think it's complicated because I think at prison I learned to do it on my own, but yet I learned that it's easier to survive within a community and that you get to pick. And so I used to say, you know, I had this idea that I had to do these things on my own in terms of I couldn't rely on other people for whatever my material needs might have been, and I couldn't really, really rely on people for my emotional needs. I think the only time that you learn to rely on people for your emotional needs is that you have these really intense open conversations with your cell partner. And when you're in the hole, you frequently have these intense open conversations with the person that's either in the cell beside you and you talk to on the door, or in my case, you could talk to somebody on the vent. But I think it's this dual notion of like doing it on your own in terms of figuring out how you are the person that you rely on. But also for me, it was sort of thinking about how to become in community with people. And so that was as a librarian, as a tutor, later on as a law clerk, right? It, it was like choosing the ways in which I wanted to interact with the world, um, running book clubs in prison that allowed me to kind of be myself and do the things I wanted to do. I'm kind of picking my own thing, um, both to stay safe, but also to, to create boundaries in which I wanted to respect and I wanted other folks to respect. And, and by, you know, by and large, it kind of worked out. You know, what's interesting about this interview is, like, yeah, I just read your your memoir that you wrote about your time in prison, right, which was published 10 years ago. Yeah. I just read it this weekend, and I was totally engrossed by it, and I keep kind of confronting you with things from the memoir that feel to me like they were just written this weekend, and the Dwayne of 10 years hence, every time I confront you with something, kind of grimaces a little bit and goes, yeah, but... <laughs> 
So, which is sort of hopeful in a sense that like things have moved on. Yeah, for you, you know. Yeah, and I'd like to think that's interesting, man. Because I like to think. I mean, one, I like to think I'm a better writer, but also I like to think I'm a better thinker. You're making me return to some of these ideas that I had about my own experience before, and I and I realize I'm. I mean, that's what that's what mem- memoir does. Memory does. You know, you constantly amending it to try to say something that's truer. It, but it's it's wild though, because like my homeboys read the book now in prison, and and some of them use it to run reading groups and discussion groups and to think about incarceration. And I was always afraid of what they would think about the book, mainly because I wasn't a keen enough writer to reach out to them and talk to them as I was writing, not just to check the facts and things like that, but just to be like, you know, point, counterpoint. This is how I saw things, but maybe that cell block wasn't even as dangerous to you as I thought it was. And what does that even mean? And I, so I don't know. So I don't, I don't know if the amending of the book and the revising of the book and the rethinking of, of these things is about me disagreeing with what I said earlier, or if it's just about me trying to work harder and not being the hero of the narrative. You know, unfortunately, this next question, though, is going to continue to make you the hero of this <laughs> podcast because you really do have a pretty fascinating trajectory. You get out of prison after being in there for nine years. You get into higher education, you get into an MFA, and then you're at Yale Law School. And then you've got to get through all the obstacles as someone who's been marked by the system to get admitted to the Connecticut Bar, which I think happened, what, two years ago now. Mm -hmm. And people who want to know more about that can read this really great essay that you wrote about it for the New York Times Magazine that I'll I'll put on the page for this episode. But I'm just wondering, are, are there things that you have learned working as a lawyer, things you've learned about the criminal justice system? that you didn't already know? Oh, definitely, definitely. But I I didn't understand how just the sheer numbers and scope and scale, just in terms of like an, even in a place like Connecticut, which doesn't have the highest incarceration rate, you know, it's not like New Orleans, it's not like Louisiana, but there's a lot of people locked up in Connecticut. And I didn't understand how so much of the system is about managing failure and about figuring out how to deal with guilt in a world that doesn't want you to deal with guilt in any kind of honest and merciful way. I didn't know that so much of the attorney's job is figuring out how to tell a story about who you are or what happens in a way that keeps you out of prison and that attorneys are trying to do that without knowing who you are <laughs> at all. Right? But, they, but they still need to craft a nar- some kind of narrative. And that is the most depressing part about all of this is that we spend so much time needing to know who people are without the time or the resources that allow us to know who people actually are. When a judge that sentenced me says, I'm under no illusion at sending you to prison with help, what he's saying is that the little bit I know means that this is a fool's errand that I'm sending you on. But I'm not really willing to interrogate just how profoundly traumatic this thing I'm sending you on may be for the future, knowing that you're going to get out in nine years. Like, maybe this decision is so horrendous that it shouldn't be made. So, yes, I think the the most profound thing I learned kind of being an attorney or working in a space for a little bit or going to law school was, like, how little we know about how the law just acts on the lives of people, the criminal justice system, like, really acts on the lives of people who are stuck in it. We know the rules. We know, like, the law. We know the Constitution. But I think we have no real sense about just what it means, the, the, the human cost of, of, of having handcuffs touch your flesh. 
I've heard you say that you you don't want to be known as like the poet who's also a lawyer. You you want to be a poet lawyer. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, you have these four poems in Felon that sort of reproduce very dry legal filings um, from from civil rights court. These are filings that are challenging people's incarceration because they couldn't pay bail. And these are poems that you make by sort of selectively redacting the documents in the way that we're familiar from seeing like intelligence documents. Um, I was wondering actually if you could read one of those. Yeah. Um, it's called uh, In California. Um, and so this one is different because um, this one is a, is a habeas corpus petition. And so it's interesting, right, because the habeas corpus petition is one client and it's saying, get my client out of custody now. Whereas the other three deal with lawsuits in which the clients were largely no longer in custody. And the lawsuit was saying that the way I was treated was unconstitutional and therefore you have to pay me damages. So in this instance, because I'm not a lawyer, habeas corpus means show me the body. Right. In this instance, we are literally talking about a body, like give right. me the body. In a way, right. right. And so that's that's the one different. And I wanted the, the things that have different voices and pieces. But you'll see that like this is just one person. Right. And it's saying it's demanding a body. In California, in the state of California, petition for writ of habeas corpus, arrested. A 63-year-old man, a retired shipyard laborer, a lifelong resident, arrested, charged first-degree residential robbery, first-degree residential burglary, inflicting injury on elder, theft, not a capital offense. No threat of great bodily harm. Defense requested release. Humphreys advanced age. Lifelong resident of San Francisco. Shipyard laborer. Lack of a recent criminal. Prosecutor requested $600,000 money bail. A criminal protective order. The judge denied release. Set bail, $600,000. The court emphasized public safety, $600,000. Humphrey did not have money to pay. Humphrey argued bail beyond his means, violated the 14th Amendment, the 8th Amendment. Prosecution argued public safety, flight risk concerns. Prosecutor requested detention. Court denied Humphrey's request. Humphrey presented acceptance letter. Golden Gate for seniors. Asked to be released to Golden Gate. Emphasized advanced age. Treatment for battle with addiction. Too poor to pay the cash. Petitioner asked a writ of habeas corpus be issued, ordering, released, an expedited hearing. The court inquired into ability to pay, release, not to detain him, release, release. You know, it strikes me that you're, you're kind of sculpting these documents in a way to sort of reveal something that was always, was always already there. I, yeah, when I talk about it, I mean, I'm telling them, look, I'm, I'm redacting. See, usually, you know, redaction is like I'm redacting the sensitive. I'm redacting the things that's above your pay grade. And I say, 
I am actually redacting the superfluous. $600,000 bail? He can't afford to pay that. And this is not about dangerousness. You know, this is like using money as a proxy for who you believe should be free. And the absurdity of it, even in this case, we got this 63-year-old drug addict. You have an attorney who did what a good attorney should do, which is find a way to let the court know that we are also going to alleviate some of the things that made the cat commit the crime, allegedly commit the crime. So he a drug addict, so we're going to get him in a golden gate for seniors to deal with treatment. And, and the court is like, nah, $600,000 bail. That is just about saying that, like, we don't want you to be free. You know, to, like, loop back around to the earlier question, I think these kind of cases, right, when you really get into the specifics, then you can see where the systemic failures actually heighten whatever individual failures exist, you know, and actually reproduce harm that triples the individual failure. And so maybe the point is never I carjack somebody, so let's act like I didn't carjack somebody and let me go. It's like, no, but let's consider whether or not the, the state's response triples the effect of that violence and that crime. You know, I think about my own victims and the, and the fact that I don't think that anything existed to, to help them deal with the tragedy of having somebody pull a pistol out on them. And nobody asked them what might help them. I know in my experience um, working at the public defender's office, it's very rare that the state comes through to support the victims in a way that's offered in more than incarceration. And so, um, and so, yeah, I think those poems particularly, though, is me trying to, like, really... I, it's actually, you know, trying to me arguing that I'm a dope poet, right? Like, I could turn... If you could turn, you right. know, a, 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 a legal complaint with all of that jargon into a poem, I think that uh, you, you accomplished a bit of something. But also, these documents are people fighting for their freedom and fighting for their constitutional rights. And what I was trying to do was, like, the poet's job is to make the people be heard. And these documents, the lawyer's job is to do the same thing. But we frequently had these legal documents that actually do that work but can't get consumed on a level of what I just was able to do by just reading this piece of what matters. And I think that that's a kind of um, public service in itself. It's like I want people to be able to think that this is great work that the Civil Rights Corps is doing. You know, and they explain that work well, but explaining it in prose and explaining it in talking points is, is not the same thing as explaining it in, in literature, I think, in, in, in poetry. So, To end, actually... So I'm surprising you with something. I wanted to ask you to to read a poem, but actually by a, a poem by somebody else. Yeah. Uh, one that I know is really important to you, and that I, I learned about through your writing, and that's uh, Lucille Clifton. Uh-huh. Uh, Won't you celebrate with me? Which you probably don't need the sheet there. You probably got to memorize. But yeah. Uh, yeah, if you if you could read that, and then we just talk about it briefly. Lucille Clifton, won't you celebrate with me? Won't you celebrate with me? What I have shaped into a kind of life. I had no model, born in Babylon, both non-white and woman. What did I see to be except myself? I made it up, here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight, my other hand. Come celebrate with me, that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. That's a remarkable poem. Yeah, Um, that's actually stunning. I, yeah, I realize, like, um, it's so much of this stuff that's just, like, you know, it's both me and not me, right? Because it's strange, right? It's like, won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of a life? And I, yeah, I think about that a lot, right? And I, and I had no model. 
Except to say I, I had a lot of models, and she was one of them, and Etheridge Knight was one of them. But this thing, though, when I was when I was shaping it, you know, it's this idea of what is a model. And when I was figuring this out, and I first read her, her poems in that in that anthology, you know, in the in black Sol- poets, in anthology. the black poets, yeah. yeah. And so, um, but then it's this thing, right? What did I see to be except myself? And that was this, you know, I, when I was like, I'm gonna be a writer. It's like I got this nine year prison sentence. So stupid, man. <laughs> you know, like sixteen year old kid. I get sentenced, and the first thing I think about is, fuck it. What am I gonna be when I go home? I'm gonna be a writer. You know, this is just absurd. And um. Yeah, but you did it. But I, I know. It's, it, that's probably the absurdity <laughs> of it too, right? And I, but you know, I made it up though. Uh, so it's in this poem that I carried it with me. You know, whole prison sentence, carried it in my head. I remember when I met her. She was a. It was at this poetry workshop. My mom says I don't talk about her on interviews enough. Actually, that, that my mom says I don't talk about my mom enough for interviews. And it's interesting. Though, my mom wrote the first poem I ever read. I can't remember the poem, but I know it was this, like a four-line poem about what life is for. And so, you know, I say I had no model, but like my mom was a real model in the sense that she was the first poet I knew who didn't say that they were a poet, who had made all kinds of life decisions that that didn't lead them to write poetry. So I, I'm I'm reading these Lucille Clifton poems, and I get out of prison, and I'm at this workshop, and I remember the first time I I, I met her. And and the, the connection between I think my mom and Clifton is that like Clifton was doing all of these things that I don't even know if my mom wanted to do, but I know that like I grew up in a world in which women, and men, but but men weren't in the world, but in which like women couldn't even make these kind of decisions, right? And so, um, I'm talking, I sit on the front row, and uh, as a kid who always sit in the back row, like I literally sat on the front row, and I just got out of prison. I, I'm like this is my second summer home. I came home in March. And it's about, it's 54 black poets there, right? And we all, like, love her work. It's only me and my man, Jamal May, we the only people that's there that don't have a college degree. And me and him carrying around books in our book bag, like talisman, like, you know, maybe people think we're not supposed to be here, so we got a book bag with seven books on us at all times, right? And I ask her, I ask her a question, raise my hand, ask a question, and, like, another question. I asked her, like, eight questions. And I didn't know her, you know I mean? I just, like, loved her work talk to her and that was it you know it was just like a world in which everybody needed to know their heroes and I was sort of like I'm kind, I'm good and, and um and I remember leaving and we were going to lunch you know a little while later I went went back to my room it was on the college campus first time like staying on the college campus you know and we're going back to the dining hall and I, I remember just like weeping just like breaking down and I, I mean I did a whole prison bed man and I cried maybe twice the first time when I found out that I wasn't going home for Christmas, I, I broke down. And then I remember the second time, and the only other time I cried was I was at receiving and I was listening to one of those civil rights joints and just feeling like I was like a fucking failure, man. And that's one of the reasons, and that's one of the things that we don't talk about when we talk about mass incarceration, right? It's like, this is like some bullshit, like Martin Luther King ain't march for me to carjack somebody. But it was just like something profoundly unsettling about just listening to everything that was going on in the 60s on Martin Luther King Day, listen to it from a cell that just, like, like fucked me up completely, just made me think that, like, I had ruined, like, everything. And so those were the only two times I cried in prison, though. I was just like, fuck it. But, man, I'm walking to the dining hall that day, and I just, like, I couldn't even move, man. I was like some kid who, who just, you know, was, like, inconsolable. And I think the, the beauty of of like her work and of literature and of language period is um 
it made me believe something was possible that I had no right to believe was possible. And then meeting her like years later just fucked me up because cause, cause it was like um, it's a weird way in which poems can sort of like make a promise to you. And so you say this out loud, you like come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. And when you say it, it's you saying it, right? And it's a way in which she demanded, I think, that the poem make a promise to herself that then the poem was making to you when you read it. And like I did all this time in prison not understanding that I was like believing this shit. And then to finally meet her, like as a poet, you know, I was like, damn, I, it was the, it was like one of the like truest commitments that outside of my mom. And that's why I started talking about my mom at first. Like my mom is the only other person in life that, that like had made that kind of commitment to who I was or who I might be. And so it's just really, I think, a, a beautiful thing to think that language can make the kind of commitment to us that most of us only get from our mothers, you know. And uh, I, I like to think that, you know, me and Therese, me and my wife, that we make the same kind of commitment to our children and, and to each other. I like to think that because, um, you know, it's something cool about being able to loop back around to these things that shaped you a decade or so later and feel like it was a true, true promise. Well, Dwayne, I, I just want to thank you so much, man, for well, for coming in here and for celebrating a little bit together the, the kind of life that, that you've shaped, you know, and, and, I, and I want to congratulate you on the writing. And, thank you. And uh, I really look forward to, to, to seeing what you do next. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. It was, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was special. So that was my conversation with poet lawyer Reginald Dwayne Betts. His latest collection of poems is called Felon, and his 2009 memoir is A Question of Freedom, and I heartily commend both of those to you. For more information about Dwayne and this episode, click the link in your show notes or visit courtinnovation.org slash newthinking. This episode was produced and edited by me, Recording was by the kaleidoscopic Bill Harkins. Samiha Mia is our Director of Design. Emma Dayton is our VP of Outreach. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. Please consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and uh, share this episode with any folks you think might like it. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening.